Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Friends, who do you consider family? Who do you travel with? Where is your spiritual home? Do you have one? (laughs) Excellent. Will Wiley, gold star, man, for that kid. Gosh, you just saved me about 28,000 words in a message, man. He's like, yeah. Over, how appropriate, I mean, over our last month together, we've actually been framing out our church family covenant. Uh, give you, show you a copy, we, we have them out there in the foyer and downstairs, you'll find them kind of all over now, and, and we're calling it a family covenant because we didn't want to fall into the trap uh, where membership in our church family becomes about having your name on a list <laughs> or being called on to do like administrative tasks. We wanted the em- emphasis to be relational about actually how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters and little brothers in Christ. And the quality of our care and concern for all who call Liquid their spiritual home. Because the Lord knows we need family. As our opening video showed, in this world we will have trouble. That's promised. But Jesus has overcome the world. And he's given us a tremendous resource in one another, adopting us into his family, which he calls the church. And as we've worked through our church family covenant, you might have noticed that embedded in each aspect is a core value. And and the first was unity, which is a big deal for God and his family, right? How we're to get along, how we're to handle conflict or resolve differences. It doesn't mean we all look the same. It doesn't mean we all uh, have the same musical tastes or dress the same. In fact, it means we have conflict, but we have a commitment to resolving it according to Matthew 18, the way Jesus set it out for us. The second was about serving one another. That that actually to be in this family, to be great, (laughs) means to humbly serve. And on your way in, you probably saw a number of servants maybe passing, maybe the people who are working with liquid kids, wiping noses out in the parking lot, or maybe some of our our foyer, um, you know, our ushers and our hospitality hosts who handed you, hopefully you were greeted well when you came in. To use our one-of-a-kind gifts that each of us has to wash feet, to wait on tables, to look after kids who run around this place. But tonight we come to the third part, which is covenanting with one another to share the responsibility of my church by, again, three things. And the first is by attending regularly. The second, by becoming part of a small group. And the third, by tithing regularly. And I'd like to focus on the first two tonight because they're all about our core value of intentional community. Being in consistent, committed relationship with one another in both a weekly, large group context, as we are tonight in the Sunday worship service, as well as in more intimate community through our small groups. Now, that third aspect, tithing, we actually won't be getting into tonight. It's an important one because sharing the responsibility of of our church family means that we contribute financial resources so that actually the needs of the whole family can be met as God intended. But remember, we just literally taught on that a month ago in our series on money, debt, and stuff, and I don't want to belabor the point. So we're making just a free CD of that message, the 10th floor, available for anyone who wants it. Free message CD, yes, free. And that will be available to you actually out in the foyer or downstairs in our lounge area that you'll probably notice has been revamped if you visited down there. And you can pick up your copy after service and listen to it at your leisure. But it's really the first two. 
That focus on intentional community that really captures the essence of what it means to share the responsibility of being in a church family. It's funny because most folks don't think of community, you know, fellowship, connection with one another, as a responsibility. It's like, shouldn't that just like be something that happens naturally and easily? No. <laughs> in fact, the Bible says it's a critical discipline that we need to be deliberate and intentional about if we're going to make progress towards our ultimate goal of becoming more like Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather. Because it's not as easy or natural as we think. Our main text for tonight is actually found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. You'll have it printed in your bulletin. You can also take a look in the Pew Bible if you want. But Hebrews is found towards the back of the New Testament. It's kind of just past Paul's letters. We've been looking at Paul's letters to the Ephesians. You've got to go past that. If you go into like the first and seconds, first, second Peter, first, second, third John, you went too far. <laughs> this is somewhere towards the back two-thirds of it. And um, it's called Hebrews. I'm going to give you one guess to whom it was written to. Anyone? Hebrews, Jewish people, Jewish people who had become Christians. And this passage I'd like to ground us in contains what I call the lettuce commands. I want you to envision, literally, a big head of ripe lettuce. (laughs) Now, that's just a word picture for you, and it's a play on words, but the writer of Hebrews makes three bold statements in Hebrews 10 that begin with two words, let us. Let us do this, let us do that, and let us do that other thing. He makes three successive lettuce commands to the Christians that he's writing to. And as we look at them, I think you'll quickly see what I mean when I say that intentional community is actually a core responsibility of being an active member of a church family. Let's read Hebrews 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us... Consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us. This is the salad section of Hebrews. But it's really this first lettuce that is, that is most meaningful because it's followed by an amazing word that has special resonance for those of you who may have a teenage driver in your family. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. Everyone here knows what it means to swerve, right? Kind of go on the shoulder. I know what it's like to swerve. A week or so ago, I was just driving to work and I stuck behind this big white SUV and they kept hitting, like, the brake lights. You know, it was like a Range Rover, and, like, they kept hitting the brake lights and jamming, real jerky and everything, very, very annoying. I was like, ah, oh, these people, they're SUVs, you know, laying on it. And, uh, and then I saw, oh, there's a small car. There was, like, this tiny, like, little two-door Corolla in front of this white SUV. And I'm looking, and the only reason I saw it is because I couldn't see behind his, you know, the big butt of the SUV. But I saw the Corolla come out, just kind of cross the yellow line. Then it kind of came over and like on the shoulders, and I was like, "Oh, here we go, drunk driver." I'm like, "Gosh, it's like you know, eight in the morning." <laughs> you know, it's not like it's Ireland. I mean, it's you know, come on. And, and then and then, I, and then I saw a triangle sign uh, as it swerved out. I saw that this Corolla had a little triangle sign on the top of the car, and I thought, "Oh, oh you know, it's it's a taxi or something." But I'm like, "A taxi in the suburbs? What's a drunk taxi driver doing out here?" And I see on the top of the sign it says Taggart's Driving School. Ah, 
That explains the swerving. Some kid going left and going right, right? Not making really steady or consistent, straightforward progress, but kind of crossing the lines, ending up in the shoulder, and eventually they actually pulled over, and me in the white SUV just kind of passed him. You should have seen the look on the instructor's face. He wasn't even looking up. He's just looking down on the board, just marking, you know, <laughs> marking things down. Anyway, the writer of Hebrews uses this rich word translated unswervingly to say, let us hold unswervingly to this hope we profess, which simply has one implication to it. Life, by default, has a tendency to veer off course. Fact, to cross the lines, to drift into the shoulder, and in some cases actually head for a collision. Now, he's talking about our spiritual faith here, of course, but he's saying our faith can be easily derailed. Actually, instead of making consistent, steady, regular progress in our growth towards God, towards becoming like Jesus Christ, we actually can get off course, off track. We may go forward at first, but at some point, circumstances can cause us to swerve a little bit to the right or the left, and we can get stuck, stranded, or in some cases, wrecked by the unexpected stuff coming at us in the oncoming lane. Ask Joe, who you saw in our opening video. All those stories were true. Married 22 years. Diagnosis, cancer. <laughs> Orlaine, the young woman who's single, loves her friends, loves to laugh, but struggles with loneliness and an eating disorder as well. A marriage cracks up. <laughs> Difficult kids, sickness, the loss of a job or a dream. Life is designed to knock you off your faith, to keep you from making regular, steady, stable progress in your relationship with God. I mean, how would you characterize your spiritual walk over this past year? Would you say that it was, like, straightforward, consistent and steady? You know, maybe, maybe a few detours, but generally stable and growing. You know, maybe you drifted here or there, you got distracted. But when you look back, last 12 months of your life, you would say, no, I made forward progress. Or how many of you have been kind of swerving, doing, maybe doing circles, not really going anywhere, or stuck? Maybe in the same place you were a year ago. Now, I know that's depressing to think about, but it's also a reality of life in this world. Life is designed to knock you off your faith. The trials, the the stresses, the temptations, right? It can jar even the hardiest and most well-intentioned believer. And that's why the writer of Hebrews exhorts the Christ followers, hold unswervingly to this hope we profess for he who promises faithful. So the question that he raises is, how do you avoid the swerve in the Christian life? That is, how do you move towards consistency? Steady forward progress in our spiritual lives. Well, part of the answer is found in verses 24 and 25. And he answers his own question with two more let us statements, right? He says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Now, I just want you to stop there. Because this sentence begins with and, and that's a conjunction. And it means I am related to the previous statement. (laughs) Let's not swerve. And let us instead spur one another. If you want to ensure that you are holding fast when life throws you a curveball, don't veer off course and get stuck, let us consider how we can spur one another towards love and good deeds. And another, this is a great word picture here, spur, right? You know what a spur is, at least in modern Western terms, right? You may have seen one on the back of the cowboy boots, right? That's our modern image. I took horseback ridings actually last summer, and it was like an English-style kind of thing. I, I, I totally thought it was like the cowboy thing. I thought I was going to be wearing a big cowboy hat, but I got one of those like little little, you know, kind of fairy dome things, you know, and like the, the tall boots. And I was like, man, I want the guns, you know, lasso. But anyway, it was interesting. We had a little crop. That's what we used to control the horse. It's like little crop. And, uh, and 
but Western riders use spurs, these little circular silver prods on the back of their boots to motivate a reluctant horse to ride forward or to turn on a dime. It was interesting because I was like, man, I want the spurs, you know, I wanted, I wanted the spurs, the hat, the belt, well, I got the belt buckle. And, uh, and it was interesting, a girl in my class actually said, she said to the instructor, she goes, well, isn't that cruel, though, kicking an animal in the ribs? And the instructor, she said, she was a little, little old lady, and she was just like, no, dear. She goes, That's an, it's called an encouragement. It's, it's a motivational technique that helps keep that horse focused. Reminds him where he's going, where to turn. And a good rider, she says, in fact, actually rarely uses his spurs. Because there's such a connection between the horse and rider that the mere sound of the spurs motivates the animal to ride forward or turn or stop, whatever. So a good rider actually goes, and the horse zeroes in. That's a Western spur. And it's an entry into the meaning of this ancient word here. The, the Hebrew writer uses it as a verb. We're to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That is, we're to encourage, to motivate, direct, catalyze, prod, maybe even poke each other forward so that together we make steady progress in growing into the life of love that God designed us for. What's one of the ways that we keep from swerving in our spiritual life? We spur. Spur on. We, we ride together. We encourage and motivate one another in our shared journey. Now, let me give you a little background because, in many ways, I don't feel qualified to talk about this. When Colleen and I first graduated college and came back to New Jersey, we were your classic church hoppers. Colleen and I, we couldn't find a home, so we went to you know, this church over here, we went to this church over here, but we didn't like the worship at this one. We liked the teaching over here at this church, but they didn't have anyone our age. And so some Sundays, we actually would go into Manhattan, into New York City, to a great church in Midtown. And we'd pay $17 for parking. We'd miss about half the message. Then afterwards, we'd go out alone, because we didn't really know anyone. And we were never there, like, you know, at other times. And we'd go out for overpriced bagels, get back in our car, drive back out the tunnel two hours later. Twice in two years, we got stuck crossing Central Park in the Puerto Rican Day Parade and missed the service entirely. Twice. Thank God was sending a message. Now, when that got too much for us some Sundays, we'd then say, well, let's just stay local. We'll go to my parents' church. Easy fallback, right? Had a, had a later start time. It was closer to home. But we didn't know anyone. We just kind of went so we could say, yeah, you know, we went to church. We did that. You know, my parents were late to see us. But Other Sundays, when we were out late the night before, we attended that most popular standby, Bedside Baptist. You know what I'm talking about? You've been there, Pillow Presbyterian, Right? <laughs> Don't laugh, I've seen many of you at the Church of the Holy Comforter, right? Oh, not this morning, just got zzz, right? We were the classic practitioners of what I like to call salad bar spirituality. I take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, go here for the great worship music, over there for the cool teaching, go to this event, skip that one, listen to tapes, and that is one approach to the Christian life with which you may be familiar. The reality is, during that entire period in our young marriage... No one had an inside track on what was really going on in our lives. Because when you're a salad bar church hopper, you can get a taste for a lot of things. But there's one thing on the menu that's out of reach. And that's authentic community. Where you're involved in substantive relationships with other people who actually have an entree to help spur you on. Or encourage and motivate you towards steady, regular growth. During that entire time, no one knew how our marriage was really going. Not that it was bad or anything like that, but we had struggles as any young couple does, and no one else knew about it. 
No one had the inside track on, on what we were doing financially. No one had an inside track on our, our hopes and dreams for starting a family, if that was smart. or No one knew the real us, except for like a few family members. And that's a problem, because sometimes your biological family are the last people who you want to know what's really going on. So back in the late 1990s, we made a decision. We actually weaned ourselves from the church buffet line and decided it was time to put down some roots. And that's how we actually ended up here at Millington. We visited with some friends, seemed like a friendly place. Our senior pastor, Pastor Pendel, has this magic thing with names. He remembered us from when we church hopped and visited like four years ago. You know, like we walked in, he bounced out. Oh, Tim, Colleen, right? We're like, uh, yeah, oh man, we're marked. We're marked here. <laughs> and so we did what people in our generation are very reluctant to do. We made a commitment, the C word. Not a commitment for life, but Colin and I both agreed, this isn't a perfect church, none are, but we committed, and we actually joined a small group. We actually joined a small group with Matt and Liz Wiley, and we're in, we're in a lot of young couples at the time, but Matt and Liz were about our age, and we joined their small group, and it was actually in that small group that met in their town home, kind of bunched in there with a few other couples that we discovered for the first time in our adult lives, the power of intentional, regular community. We were in that group for two years. Matt, every other week, and honestly, Matt, no offense, I can't remember what we studied, man. <laughs> Matt's like, I can't either. And he taught it. Shame on you. <laughs> but do you know what I do remember, Claire Isabel? Not feeling alone anymore as Colin and I got to know young other couples who were struggling with adjustments to marriage. We found actually other folks fought about sex and finances. <laughs> and that in itself made us feel less alien. I remember other things as we met each week for Bible study and prayer. I remember praying with friends who were having trouble conceiving. They were wrestling with infertility. And to be able just to come alongside of them, to encourage them, was a high honor. Suddenly we were, we were needed. Others were counting on us. And we were counting on them. In that little group, we walked through a job crisis with a friend. I can't remember if it was a job loss or transfer. But I do remember long talks with him as he worked through that huge question that haunts many of us. What does God want me to do with my life? But don't get the wrong impression. It wasn't all crises and tribulations. It was kind of a party group. We celebrated. We actually began spending time together outside of our scheduled meetings. We go out for dinner, to movies, etc. And we got to actually celebrate the birth of the first child in our group with Matt and Liz as they had their lives turned upside down with the first of their four kids. They've liked it so much, they just haven't stopped. Now I'm like, no, you have, there's a whole separate group for you now, man. I don't know. You're, you're in another world here. It was a powerful thing for Colleen and I. And it was the key thing that made us stick. Not how great the worship was, not how charismatic or engaging the preacher was, but all of a sudden, we had relationships and our lives were knit together with other people. And that's God's ordained way. When life hits us and we can't hold on, we've got a fighting chance of staying on the path of growth if we've given ourselves to intentional community, as the writer of Hebrews calls us to. We're still close friends with Matt and Liz to this day. You probably see their kids running nilly-willy in the jungle gym outside. Liquid was, you know, discussed and hatched in that small group several years ago. Why? All because Colleen and I took a risk to put down some roots and say, this is going to be, for better or for worse, our church home. It ain't perfect, but neither are we. So I guess it's a good match. <laughs> We committed to meeting regularly for intentional communion in two ways, by worshiping each Sunday with a larger body here and by traveling with a smaller band of brothers and sisters on a weekly basis. And we've grown. Our faith has grown. Our vision for what church can actually be has expanded as well. 
It's interesting, but that word spur, as part of a family, we spur one another on. That word, especially the image, it does connote kind of the poking or prodding of the, of the person on the receiving end. And that's what community is all about. In a sense, we're opening ourselves up to another's gentle poking or prodding. It's like, kind of like, all right, I trust you. I'm going to give you permission to speak into my life. I'm going to open up myself to your influence. And that's a vulnerable thing. It's one of the primary reasons a lot of people are frightened to make a commitment to a church or small group. Accountability. What happens when someone sees what my life is really like, flaws and all? Will I still be accepted? What if you were more than accepted? What if you were actually encouraged, spurred on? What if, what if you had others to help carry you through the hard times, to pray with you, to share a word of scripture with you, to, to help you see God at work in your life even when you don't have a clue where he is? Is it just possible that your swerving would actually lessen? That you might actually begin making steadier progress because you're no longer isolated, but you're sharing the journey with others? I mean, let me ask real practically. Where does, where does a man go? I'll speak for men first. Where does a man go to express his fears or his doubts? If, you're, if you've got fears or you're struggling or you're lacking purpose in life, you don't think you have what it takes marriage-wise or with your kids and it's all disaster, where do you share that? At work? Where? Where, do, where does a couple go to share their struggles with others? Not just keep them private between the two of them, but publicly invite other people to help them see, to help them make progress, to help them make adjustments, to get a word of correction. Where do a mom or a dad go when their team, teen is just like going off the deep end and they're just going to like lose their mind <laughs> because of it? This is about mutual encouragement, folks. That's the way God designed us to grow. That you need others, and others need you. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. According to scripture, Christians have a very high calling to care for one another, stimulate each other spiritually, morally, so we don't get off track. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, each of us has to be actually challenged to a love that's actively expressed, good deeds. It's a cornerstone of authentic Christian community. So the question is, why are so many of us reluctant to commit to that. <laughs> now, i got a theory on this, and it has to do with the common phrase we use to describe our relationship with God. That is, those of us who would claim to be Christ followers, we describe it this way. We say we have a certain type of relationship with Jesus Christ. What kind? It begins with a P. Personal. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Yes. And while that's true, that the God of the universe wants to relate to you on an individual level, that when it comes down to it, your faith is your responsibility. It's not your parents. It's not others. It's a personal choice. While it can be said that our relationship is personal, it does not mean that it is private. And that's how I think many folks have translated it. They've made it synonymous. My personal or private relationship with Jesus Christ. It's, it's nobody's business but my own. Just me and Jesus. Yeah, how's that working for you? Recipe for swerving. It, it amazes me whenever I meet with people who are in crisis because, they, you know, they say, hey, can I, can I see you, Tim? Can we make an appointment next week or come in to talk with you? And they come in upset, and, and that's fine. I'd love to talk, and, 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 you know, with people. And, uh, and they start describing, you know, something devastating has happened, and their world is rocked. And, and at, by the end of, like, talking, you know, we spent a half hour or, or 45 minutes or so just, just talking nothing. I mean, just filling me in on it. They're so disproportionately grateful than they should be. They're like, thank you so much. It was thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time. Why? Not because I have great things to say. Those of you who know me in personal life, I don't. <laughs> I usually just listen. And then I introduce them and direct them over to Glenn. <laughs> and, but they're thrilled 
to talk with me because they have no one else they can talk to. And I, and I asked them, I go, now, are, are, you in a small, are you in a small group? Who's walking through this with you? I mean, with, with the loss of your mom. What, what, who's going to help you make it now that you're on your own without your parents? Uh, to be honest, I have no idea whether you should go to grad school for video game design or become a missionary. I don't know. Um, do you have any others you're talking about this stuff with? And it boggles me how 9 out of 10 simply say, uh, no. Why? Because our faith is privatized. We keep to ourselves. And then we wonder why we get stuck or swerve or just have gross inconsistency in our spiritual maturity. It was never God's design to have those lone ranger saints. Remember that type of imbalanced Christian I introduced you to? That's the result of rugged individualism in our Western culture brought to bear on our spiritual lives. It's just me and Jesus, hi-ho, silver, away from everyone else. No. For those of us who wish to, be, to hold to Christian hope, the writer of Hebrews is saying, community with others, believers, is vital. Crucial mix of accountability and encouragement. Our identity in Christ is a corporate identity, according to the Bible, in which we're, we're meaningfully related to, the, to others in the whole. We're neither self-made, think about it, we didn't make ourselves, and we can't maintain ourselves. We're not self-maintained. We need others. That's a foundational truth of strong and steady growth. We see evidence, I mean, in nature around us. How many of you have ever visited the Redwood Forest of California? You ever been there up close? Ever seen a redwood? Incredible, incredible uh, objects in nature. It's said that the giant redwood trees of, of the western United States, you know, they grow to, to heights of uh, hundreds of feet, in some case thousands, and they can weigh upwards of, of you know, th- just thousands of pounds. They actually have a very relatively shallow root system. Did you know that? We were in Muir Woods one time, and you'll see the roots. They're almost always coming up out of the ground. It's never smooth because they don't go down very far, very shallow roots. Yet there's some of the most stable forests around. They, redwoods weather storms, you know, forest fire. They grow for hundreds of years in these mighty ancient pillars. Well, their enormous weight is supported and stabilized in part by the interlocking of the tree's roots with the other trees around it. That's the funny thing. You'll see them crisscrossing like a network. Underneath, It creates this network of interlocking roots that hold each tree tight and secure. So, so they may, these trees may stray during a, you know, they may sway back and forth during a storm, but they don't crash or topple over. They're actually linked underneath to another. You get the parallel. As Christians, same thing. We need interlocking roots with other believers in the church to withstand the enormous weight of life because trouble will find you. Cancer. Loneliness. Heartbreak, temptation, loss. And the impact will be, quite honestly, to drift from the presence of God, drift just kind of into self or into sin, if it's temptation. And we need others spurring us on. Hey, come on, back. (laughs) Towards love and good deeds in a world so bent on self-centeredness and self-gratification. In the book, Disciplines for the Inner Life, Tilden Edwards speaks of the importance of spiritual friends this way. He writes, unless we are particularly heroic or saintly persons, each of us needs a relationship with at least one other person who also seeks and trusts the simple way, the simple presence, capital S and P. Such a spiritual friend can be enormously supportive to us, and we to them, you feel a little less alone, a little less tempted to fall mindlessly into complicating traps, 
Someone else is there who knows whether or not you're trying to pay attention to the simple way. That brings a kind of accountability that is important. When someone else knows and cares, then we pay that much more attention to what we are doing. That's the idea behind intentional community. It's how we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. By opening our lives to one another in a consistent, regular way, even though, yes, we're busy. Oh, gosh. Oh, not small groups again. I don't got time. Even though it's risky. Oh, no, not small groups again. I got burned once. I opened up one time, man, and showed him my wound, and someone poured salt in it. (laughs) We provide each other with encouragement and accountability and spur one another on. That's what a Western spur does. You give permission to someone to prod or poke the soft spots in you. When it comes to maturing steadily in the life of love, hope, and good deeds that God designed you for. My prayer life is a great example of this, by the way. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Uh, My prayer life can be wildly inconsistent from week to week. I know this is like a scandalous thing for a pastor saying you're like, (gasps) shocked. (laughs) But when I meet with my group of guys on Tuesday morning for prayer and fellowship, even though it's early and a cruel hour... Even though I usually kind of pray the night before to be, you know, for it to snow and be canceled, you know, the next morning, I know I'm at least guaranteed I'm going to have one good, extended, concentrated time of prayer before God each week. I'm, I'm, now, I'm working on extending my time in God's presence on my own, make no doubt, but the most consistent, steady progress I've made has been in the context of intentionally carving out time to do it regularly with a small group with others. And that requires sacrifice. A level of intentionality. Make time for it to happen. Yet, you know, even though my life is getting busier and busier, that's actually a valid objection. It's like, where would this even fit in for me? It requires a level of accountability. Others are free to poke or prod in my soft spots. (laughs) And I'm trusting and relying on them to do that. And And they're actually relying on me. This is not new stuff, folks. This is the foundation that the early church was built on. As I mentioned in the message series, uh, message that opened the series, we're simply trying to build a, a model based on what the early church actually did, and it wasn't complicated. Acts 2, verses 46 and 47 give us a picture of this. It says, the early believers, every day they continued to do two things. What? One, to meet together in the temple courts. That is, come together for a large gathering of worship. Two, they broke bread, where? In their homes. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. It's interesting, because after Jesus left, the early church actually kept it very simple. They didn't, like, adopt a big vision statement and, you know, like, all elaborate programs and everything. They really gave themselves only to two things, according to Acts. Corporate worship, large group gathering in the temple courts, that is the church. They observed the Sabbath, what we now know as we call, you know, Sunday. And home-based fellowship. Small group community, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together, communion on a regular basis. They got together, mingled with one another, and with God himself. Large group gathering, small group life. That's just the model of the early church, and it makes sense. Think about it. What what happens in a large gathering? I mean, when the entire community comes together for worship and teaching, maybe you wander in here disconnected in something, but then all of a sudden it's like, is that what's going on here? You see other people, some of them are just sitting. Some of them are raising their hands. Some are singing, some are crying, some are just watching. And you identify with one of them, and, and, you, and all of a sudden you realize we're, we're doing something here than just singing songs. We're like coming into the, the presence of God, in the presence of his people. And, and you connect with your father together, and you, and you see 
oh my gosh, my faith is about something bigger than the smaller issues of my lives that had me totally distracted and overwhelmed when I walked in here. You receive encouragement. You actually hear God's word. You may have read things a million times, but all of a sudden you hear it in a new way. You draw strength from it. You stay on target. And you likely encourage others too. I mean, whenever I go away, it's nice to take a break from church once in a while. But even after a week, I find myself really missing corporate worship. But here's the deal. The Bible teaches the large gathering is not enough. The second half of the equation for the early church was small bands of believers that met together in homes. And as you know, we're becoming a church of small groups. This is where you really get to know someone in an intimate way, in a way that a large group, you know, gathering on Sunday does not. We have a great time here, but... In a small context, you become intimate with another person's strengths and their weaknesses. Their dreams, what they want to give their lives to, and their failures and their fears. And this, you get to care for and nurture somebody rather than just exchange pleasantries. Hey, sup, Mike? Sup? See you next week. That's it. It's essential. And that's why we've invested so much time in developing such an extensive menu of small groups for people to plug into. I mean, you know our metaphor that we're kind of using. We want to move folks from the foyer, the large group we are gathering, to the kitchen. We've designed our church to, to work like a home. It says the early church broke bread. It's about communion around food, both physical and the spiritual nourishment that Christ offers. It's an intimate act. It's where friends become family. We talk about the real nitty-gritty stuff of life. And small group community is the place where you're really missed if you're not there. People may not notice, actually, if you're not here on Sunday in a crowd this size. I know, shocked. Gather with others in our season of life to grow yourself in the area where you need help. If you look at the handout in your bulletin, and we put one in there just kind of where it says, ready to take the first step into community, you'll notice that we've designed two levels of groups for people to be involved in. One is a closed group, one is an open group. Because we know some people don't want to, can't make that full commitment just yet, but maybe they weren't interested in an open group. Closed group, I'll show you an example. Like over here, you'll see a married and engaged group. That's Amy and Drew's newlyweds group. (laughs) It's a small group of about four couples. They're working through a a Bible study on the roles of wives and and husbands in marriage. How's that work? And they meet every other Wednesday where they they watch a video together. I would imagine they eat a lot. Yeah? Yeah. And they discuss stuff. You'll see after the locust, right? I mean, that's a group led by Lynn Tarantula and Jessica McCann. That meets every week. And that group of seven or so women is working through a book called After the Locust, which focuses on how you face loss and still grow in your faith. Those are closed groups, meaning strangers don't just walk in. These people are going to travel together with a certain period of time. But then we have these open groups. You see like these open groups? Like the Princeton Dinner Club. That meets once a month. Approximately 20 to 30 people get together in a restaurant and hang out. Usually there's a little discussion centering around an article that has to deal with face. Last month a group talked about like reality TV and you know how it just, you know, just totally distorts our, our, our views of the world and people and Obviously, the closed group is where you're going to be consistently known and cared for. You're going to be prayed over. It's where real growth happens. But we also put open groups, which is ideal for new visitors who want to take a step towards it, but maybe can't make that full commitment just yet. And that's totally okay. We realize people's schedules can be difficult. But new closed groups are starting up soon, and you might want to get and go in a community right away. So if you want to be in a closed uh, small group, all you have to actually do, you can actually tear this off and put it in the offering later and say, I might be interested, maybe. That strong a commitment. (laughs) And basically, we're not going to force you to get in it, but we'll tell you what's available. Or you can email Erica or visit the small groups table downstairs after the service to sign up even for one tonight. Check out the open groups on the uh, the handout meeting 
This week, you'll notice we've got a seekers group. That meets Tuesday, April 25th at Mannion's. It's actually a pub. It meets in a bar of all places. Break bed, hoist the, point, <laughs> hoist the pint, I guess. I don't know. I haven't been to it. Uh, if you have some questions that you wouldn't mind like talking about in a casual environment, maybe you're not sure. You've been coming liquid, but you're like, I don't buy it yet. Lucas. Not certain about this whole Jesus thing. But I see something different. You come to Mannion's on Tuesday and you chat with Ben, Dane, and Tim. Or maybe you're a woman. Huh. Good luck trying to be a you know, woman of purity in today's culture. Women receive tons of messages each day, what they should look like, how they should act, what they should do to attract men, how you should go to keep your husband. The list goes on and on. The Garden Enclosed is a small group. And it's dedicated explicitly to helping women figure out what God's design is for relationships, for sexuality, and femininity. It's very specific. But it's an open group. So even if you've never been before, you can check it out. It's in Raritan, actually, on Thursday nights at 8. We believe these kinds of small groups are the environment, folks, where the most significant life change has the best chance to occur. And that's humbling to say. I'm the guy who makes his living talking on Sundays. But you know what? Hearing a message in a large group, it has very limited impact. You may be challenged. You may be inspired. But in small group community, you, re- you start digging through God's word for yourself. You start sorting out the issues. Challenge one another. What are you hearing from God? What am I? Speak into one another's life. It's the environment where real life change has the best chance of occurring. But don't just take my word for it, okay? Because um, I've asked one of our actually longtime small group participants and leaders to come up and just briefly share about her experience with intentional community. Amy Huber is a, is a longtime friend, and she can likely speak. Would you grab that microphone, Amy, with more uh, breadth of experience? She's been in groups actually as a single person before you were married, led groups, been in groups, and now you're leading a group for young married folks with your husband, Drew. So thank you for coming up. Just maybe a few questions, Amy. What kind of role has small groups played in your own spiritual journey as you think about it? I really can't remember when I wasn't in a group. You know, it's been a lot of them. So you're a small group junkie. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I think I need withdrawal or something like that. (laughs) But um, when I think of small groups, I think it goes back to my belief in what that slide was up there, that you can't be a Lone Ranger Christian, that it doesn't work. It doesn't work for me, and I can't imagine it can work for most other people. Um, I have to have people who love me and encourage me and affirm me and speak into my life, or I will just be taken out. And I think it's a proven fact. Um, I think of Satan and how Scripture describes him as not a purring kitten sitting in the corner, but a prowling lion seeking to devour And when you're up against something like that, you don't go into that alone. You have to go in with other people or you just won't make it. So whether it was when I was single or now that we're married, um, I remember um, small groups being essential to my growth in the Lord as single. And then now that we're married, I mean, as perfect Drew Drew is, which we all know that, (laughs) but as perfect as he is, there's no way that I can expect him to be everything. So I have to have other people, too, yeah. um, or it's, it's yeah. too much pressure for him. How does a small group, like, um, and because I, I find my own faith can kind of get kind of self-absorbed. How am I doing? How, how's this happening? Very much. How does it take you out of yourself and begin putting the focus on other people? Well, I think that it's impossible for it to only be you when you're in a small group, because yeah. otherwise the group won't work, <laughs> and you won't have any friends and all of that. But um, I just think of... Um, other people's struggles and stuff that you work through with them, and that yeah. just naturally happens. Um, groups are messy. I, 
there's a lot of messiness in them. They're not easy. Um, but I remember uh, one group that I was in a little while ago, and one of the girls in that was Jill. And I'm sure she's not here anymore because she's moved out of the area. Maybe she's listening online. But her life totally changed in our small group. She, she started to seek God again and um, started to live that out in her relationships. She was able to forgive her father for a lot. Um, her brother started going to church as a result of her walk. Her parents started going to church again. Her whole family was just completely changed. And when you get to see that, you just want to see where God's working. And when yeah. God's working in people's lives, that's what you see in a small group. You really wouldn't see that here on a Sunday night, that yeah. something that transforming yeah. is taking place in someone's here. You actually get to you see know? God's power up close, yeah. not just kind of on a screen or in, in, in a big group. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate your, your testimony. Thank you. You can put that over there. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's interesting because the writer of Hebrews actually caps off this section with that third lettuce let a statement that has a, has a significant implication. It's in the last verse, verse 25, he says, Let us, therefore, not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see what's implied in the phrase, let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing? What's the implication? The temptation will be to drop out. <laughs> it's guaranteed. To neglect community, to literally give up. Like, oh, you know what? It's not natural, the Bible's telling you, to commit to community with other people. In a large group each week, that's not natural, actually. You people come every week, you're not natural. <laughs> it's not natural to link up with somebody. you got enough problems of your own. Why do I need his too? I don't want it. I don't want it. There are a million reasons to give up on church each week or small groups. Maybe you were in a bad one. You had a crummy experience and now you're gun shy. Or maybe you're like Amy. You've been in so many small groups, you can't... Oh, the thought of having to make a whole new group of friends. Or perhaps it's a large group commitment you wrestle with. You know, you, coming even to our worship service each Sunday is a struggle in itself. You're inconsistent. You're like, oh, heck of a night to come. I haven't been here in like a year. And there are all sorts of good reasons and rationalizations for that. I actually saw a friend at the mall the other day, someone I had not seen in a while. And it was really weird because I said, hey, what's going on, man? And he actually looked like all sheepish, like all like kind of apologetic. He's like, hey, dude, so I'm sorry, man. I just haven't been to Liquid in a while. I'm like, dude, I don't care. I don't even know who's here. I can't see you. It's all dark. And, uh, and, uh, and, and he's like, no, but I got good reasons because it's actually just kind of, I was like, how's it going? He said, well, that's, that's why I'm not there, actually. Actually, stuff is just crazy in my personal life. He goes, I'm changing jobs, and that's, that's going to require me to move, actually. I'm still in the area, but I have to, like, move out of my townhouse. It seems like my whole life is in upheaval. On top of it all, my parents have been sick, and I've had to do double-time caring for them. Anyway, everything in my life is in chaos, so I'm just going to kind of wait till that settles down, and then I'll probably have time for church. Catch it? On one level, that sounds absolutely rational, practical, understandable, if coming to church was merely about time. But it's about growth, growing. And the Bible warns us that when we give up or neglect meeting together, you're in danger. Especially at those moments when you're most vulnerable. When circumstances throw your life into chaos. That's when you're in danger of swerving or running off the road the most. In fact, when your life is most chaotic, upside down, in turmoil, overwhelmed, that's when you need to go to church the most. That's when you need sanctuary. There's a reason we call it a sanctuary. That you can actually just go in and be in God's presence, just alongside God's people, and just worship and get out of yourself. Raise your eyes off your circumstances towards God. 
Come into his presence, just be still maybe, just for even an hour. Be recreated by fellowship around his word. Strengthened for what awaits you outside those doors tomorrow morning when your alarm goes off. You don't wait till you've got everything together to start going to church. It's the opposite. It's when everything is falling apart that you need Christian community the most. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Apparently, some folks in the Hebrew community were abandoning their gathering together for regular worship. That's why this is written. And there are several potential reasons for that. They may have been discouraged by the threat of persecution, or by continued connections with their former Jewish faith, or just by apathy. Eh, whatever, I follow it. Whatever the reason, the author sees their discontinuance of fellowship and worship as fatal to their faith. Think about it. Encouragement can't take place in isolation. It's impossible. He actually says, don't give up on intentional communion. In fact, even more so when the heat is on. Notice he says, all the more as you see the day, capital D, approaching. That is, he's referring to Christ's return to judge the world and gather his people. And as things grow closer to the Lord's return, it doesn't mean we drop out or privatize our faith. Even when the going gets difficult, let us not give up. It's the hard times when you need church the most. When the strength offered by your family of faith is most critical. Difficulties or struggles, even busyness in life should never be excuses. You know, I mean, it's just those those moments where you really need your strengthening. And so those of us who've enjoyed the support that comes with regular large and small group fellowship can testify to the power of that. I know other people can stand up here. Colleen and I will tell you that we're better parents, honestly, because of the married couples that we meet regularly with. There's no doubt about it. There's just stuff, we, we, you know, just practical stuff like, oh, okay, don't give the kids juice past 8 a.m. All right, all right, that works, okay. Practical little stuff like that. Saying, have you ever had like, um, I don't know, how do we say this, um, almost murderous or strangular kind of uh, feelings towards your kid when they're up at 2 a.m.? Yes, I know exactly what you think. I'm going to pray for you before I report you to Dyfus. <laughs> There's moments where better parents. Kyle's a better mom. When she returns from the covering, that's, that's our group for young moms. That's why, I, in fact, when that Monday comes around for her meeting with other young moms, I do every, it's my day off, <laughs> but I do everything I can to make it easier for her to attend on Monday nights. I take the kids, I'm like, and you know, I'm not always like, I'm like, well, I'll take the kids, no, go, go, go bring them dinner, you know, I'm going to give them a bath, you know, because I know making it possible for my wife to get together to pray with and for other young moms is the best possible investment I can make as a husband and a father. How about you? Are you ready to make a commitment to finally put down some roots so you can grow strong with others? Because you're not that much different than a horse or a redwood. (laughs) There's a U2 song that goes by the title, Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own. (laughs) With all due respect to Bono, I'd check that and make it. You can't make it on your own, period. The Christian life is a team sport, not a solo endeavor. That's why the scripture says, let us. Not let I or make you, it's let us together. In fact, let's do that. Let us stand together, okay? I'd like for us as a church to just stand and actually read Hebrews 23 verses 25 in unison, okay? Let's read this together. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Thanks. You can be seated. How about you?
Are you ready to put down some roots? To take a first step towards intentional community? You won't find a more imperfect, but honest and welcoming place to try that than here at Liquid. And I realize there are a thousand reasons not to. So, you know, you know to, take, to just take a pass this time around. You're like, well, Tim, my life is busier than ever. We're having a kid. I, you just said it. It's nuts. Or I like anonymity. I feel like, you know, or I'm not into membership. I can't commit right now because I might be moving next year. Yada, yada. Whatever. I only ask one question. Four words. If not now, when? You've been invited to join a small group. But we're also inviting you to take the next step and join our church family. On Saturday, May 6th, from 10 a.m. to 12 noon, we are having a liquid membership brunch, what we're calling loosely covenant class. <laughs> and it's not just dry information. That's the stuff we've been talking about for the last three weeks. But this is designed to be highly relational, and that's why we're doing it around food. We think friendships are better formed around food, and we're going to talk just about where we're going as a church give you some sense of, of where we've been, maybe, if you're new. And we're going to talk, actually, about our end of the covenant, because a covenant, as you know, is not, not a contract. A covenant means two-way. Like, if you commit to liquid as your church family, you should be asking a question, well, what can I expect, like, in return? Great question. Come have brunch. And we'll talk about how we, how we have systems in place to care for you, what you can expect of us, what we probably can't do, and share some of our evolving vision for the year to come. Colleen and I faced a crossroads nine years ago, whether to remain spiritual nomads, you know, just wandering from here to there without making any commitment, or to finally bite the bullet and put down some roots. And I can tell you today, I know we made the right choice. Why? Because our lives are changed. We've seen other lives change. And it's God's hope that by his power and alongside his people, your life will change too. This is a place to start. To put down roots if you've been spinning your wheels or caught in limbo for too long. Take a step towards community and share the responsibility that comes with being part of a family of faith. And I guarantee you will not be the same come next year. You're going to grow. I can't tell you how much, but you'll grow. Some of you will grow up. Some of you will grow deeper in God. Some of you will grow towards others as well. We're actually going to have sign-ups for this membership brunch right here after the, uh, the service up front. We've got a couple of uh, boards in which you can sign up. And again, it's only going to be a couple of hours of your time, and we're going to have brunch. We're going to have some good food. If nothing else, you get a full belly. Um, but you need to know, we, we need to know actually how many to expect for this, our first uh, membership class, how much you know, brunch to order. And we are expecting it to be a beautiful day and hope to be outside even a little. Maybe we'll have the whole thing out in the uh, cemetery on the right. Wouldn't that be great? Um, I hope you'll come. I hope you'll come join the family. Maybe this is your moment. Let's pray together, okay? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you haven't made uh, us to be isolated or all alone. In fact, when you first looked down on your original creation, you said it's not good for man to be alone. We're not meant to be isolated, but knit together in a network, Lord, of, of roots. Be attached to you, Lord Jesus, as our vine, drawing life from you, and then sharing it with one another. Lord, I thank you for this church. I ask now as, Lord, you're our source of life. I ask that you'd grow it. I ask that you would grow us deeper in you. And I ask that you would encourage and give strength even to the men or women tonight who may be thinking about taking for the first time in their life a step towards commitment. Work in them powerfully, Lord. Empower them, give them boldness and clarity and know what to do through your Holy Spirit. 
In Jesus' name, amen.